0: Okay, here yes. we go. There we
1: go. Hey, Michael.
0: Nice to hey. meet you. Nice uh, to we, meet you. We, we might have another student joining. Uh, a few of them are, a few of the other students are essential workers, so they're working during this time. They usually tune in the following day. Awesome. So, Michael. And shout outs to all the essential workers out there. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Keeping society from crumbling under these, under extreme duress. Definitely a shout out
0: to Victor and shout out to Damien. Damien's working in the hospital right now, so. We, uh, uh yeah. for you, man. Out. all right. Well, John, thanks so much for being on the cast today.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me.
0: And we're going to, you know, talk about acting and we're going to talk about our experience making the trouble, which is a feature length film that I directed and John starred in, uh, he starred as Billy,
1: yeah. Hi, hey, everybody. I'm a. Uh, my name is John Vogel. I'm an actor slash writer slash comedian from the Bronx, New York. Uh, best known for playing Billy in The Trouble, which you can watch for free on uh, Tubi or Amazon Prime. Uh, I also plug. Uh, I, I plug a lot. I say that sentence <laughs> whenever I can. Yeah. Uh, but it's great to be on the show. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure
0: to be on. I also do quite a bit of plugging of it. So, and I appreciate. Uh, promoting it so it was kind of a there's 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 so much to unpack um Mm -hmm. it was it was a fantastic experience working with you on the film and we were friends for for many years before that so people that aren't aware i wrote the part of billy with john in mind because i had a feeling he could pull it off and he did and uh John also has a background in sketch comedy and uh improvisational comedy. And was, so we're, we're going to talk a little bit about that and the role that improv played in the making of this particular feature. And we're going to jump right into some some questions, actually, from some of the students. And yeah. I, I guess the first one was coming from Damien and Damien is asking, what would you say is the biggest advantage and disadvantage of performing on theater as opposed to film and vice versa?
1: Yeah, um, that, I, I really like this question because uh, the the biggest, well, the first things I did for, did, think about are the ways uh, acting for the stage and acting for the camera are, are different. And I feel like the way I would answer this question is is a lot different than when I feel uh, the the answers that come up in a lot of um, other interviews. Because I mostly I, I mostly start thinking about the parts of it that are not acting, <laughs> which is like, for example, like in a in a theater production, especially in uh, in New York, the the realities of staffing and the economics of like who you can hire as a stagehand and and for how much uh, is such that unless you're on Broadway, Broadway, the actors are doing most of the like stagehand work in between scenes, like they're like setting up their own furniture and like so much is like you moving tables and chairs is committed to your memory as part of your blocking as if it were like a character movement. And sometimes the directors work that in and sometimes they don't. But it's a very unique thing, like as you're trying to also hit like your emotions and your beats and your timing and your expressions, you're also thinking about like <laughs> basic moving, making sure you move the chair to the right place. And, and even on the most micro budget of, of film sets, it's, it's usually at least like the, the, cat, the, the DP will move the chair for you, you know, mostly because you'll do it wrong. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that, that's so <laughs> fascinating that movie, right? about
0: theater i never really i guess fully thought about it. it makes perfect sense but i just never thought about the fact that the actors are you know they have to just remember all this technical stuff of where to move you know it's like they're involved in the production design
1: yeah. <laughs> in and there's scenes. a there's a there's a film equivalent to that too where but I, I i find it more creative like one thing i always i always need to that's always on the top of my mind when I'm, when I'm on camera. Uh, I, I like the option of being very physical and, like, working my hands in, but I need to know where my frame is. Like I said, so I'll, like, ask, like, whoever's in front of the camera, just, like, let me know when I'm out. Uh, and I'll just, yeah. like, extend my hand outward so that I know exactly kind of how much room I have to play within because I would hate to ruin a take, like, if I did really good, but I, you know, cut out of the frame in a way that wasn't good. Yeah. Whereas, you know, in the theater, either someone can see everything or they're sitting behind a pillar and they don't see anything anyway. So,
0: yeah, you don't yeah. really
1: think in those terms.
0: That's true. So,
1: yeah. um, in terms of the advantages, uh, so I think a lot of times you would think having more takes to get something perfect in, in film is, is an advantage, but you do a lot of that in rehearsals. You know, for a theatrical production, you spend so much more time in rehearsal than you do. Uh, actually, uh, performing like the shows, whereas um, I think,
2: yeah, in acting movies, in a film, you you end up having less rehearsals, probably.
1: Yeah, because a lot of the time, the only time you get the actors together and the director together is is on set, um, and you do a lot of that sort of while everyone's setting up. You when you have downtime with other actors, um, but I think it's it's not all that much different in my mind ultimately you're just trying to be a person uh and you're trying to make sure that like the director is getting what they need to tell the story correctly and 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 then you're just saying well as long as those boxes are being checked my job is is being as much of a real person as i can be for on a moment to moment basis uh and that the mechanics of that work pretty similarly it's just when that line is being blurred like (laughs) am I remembering to move the chair to the right place or, uh, or what have you that, that that's where it starts to, to differentiate.
0: Yeah. Um, nice. So w- w- one of Michael's questions, I'm going to tackle this one. How do you go about picking your actors? So in the case of the trouble, I, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's different ways of picking act- actors. Like I mentioned, I actually had re- uh, this was a a project that I had co-written with Mark Marini, who John also knows. Uh, Mark's my cousin. And when it came to picking actors, um, the part of Billy was somebody, we already had John in mind for Billy. But for most of the roles, we actually held castings. So there's there's different ways that you could hold like a casting and have people come in on audition there's websites where you could look at people's headshots and look at their demo reels. And, you know, a lot of times actors will have links to their reels. I'm imagining that's becoming even more and more popular now with this whole crisis where there might be be even less in-person auditions. Um, So it was kind of a mixture between casting a few people that I knew for specific roles and then, um, a lot of people that I didn't know by h- holding auditions or what we call castings. Um, And we're going to jump into one of, I mean, there's a lot to talk about before I move move on to the next question. I, I guess I should say regarding picking actors, it's not just about um the way that the actor looks or if they're, they have a, you know, if, if they do a great job, um, it has to be the right sort of alchemy, the right sort of chemistry of how you could picture these performers together in the scenes with each other. Is it, you know, like somebody might come in and do a great audition. So I think that's also advice for actors that are out there that, um, you know, they feel like maybe they, they didn't do so great because they didn't land the part that might not be the case. They might've done a fantastic audition, but, might be something as simple as they don't look like they could be the sibling of somebody else who's already cast or you know it could be just something completely a lot of times it is something really out of their control so you're you're looking for people that are talented and also people that kind of you know they they, they there's sort of a chemistry between them and other actors and so some people even do that there's sometimes chemistry tests that are done. Yeah, I remember you did some
1: screen tests toward the end of the casting process to make sure that some of the key roles, like, were going to work, especially because so much of uh, so much of the dialogue was going to be improvised. It was so important that that the characters clicked, that the actors clicked in a way.
0: That was so important. But good question, Michael. Thank you. Um, we're going to jump into one of Victor's questions. Uh, Victor's asking uh, what inspired what inspired you to write the trouble so that's a great question because the trouble was such a micro budget feature film and really it was born out of the the desire to to make a feature film that, it, we re, It's it's so important to n- note that the South Bronx was also sort of a character in the story. And you know, to tell a story that set was set in the South Bronx, and at the time I was living there, running Alphabet City Films there. John was living in the South Bronx, and I had attended the 2014 Cannes Film Festival. This is really the true inspiration behind the Trouble. I was trying to develop a bigger thing a bigger budget thing. And I was meeting all these different producers and pitching my heart out on this existential comedy that I had co-written with Mark called Instant Gratification. And people were liking it. We were getting some good feedback on my pitch, on the project, but the problem... Also, you should
1: mention your, your resume at the time. You had eight short films under your belt.
0: That's true. I had, I had written and directed eight short films. But jumping into features, I guess despite having written eight shorts and doing all these other things. And, but I guess not having had a feature under my belt really was, um, was a major strike against me. Not that anybody said that, by the way, nobody was like, Hey, you've never done a feature before. What are you crazy? It was more like, Oh, we like this idea, but nothing just popped off. You know, they just, there was just, I wasn't getting the kind of follow up. And the kind of traction that I was, I guess, hoping for. Then when I came back, uh my co co-produ- my co-producer, producing partner, George Rudi, he said, Hey, why don't we just pool our money together and, you know, make a feature film and then people could see what kind of work we could do. You know, we're gonna we'll do something awesome. And, you know, he's like, you know, we could have very limited characters, very limited locations. I'm like, you know what? Fuck it. Let's do that. Let's do it. What do we have to lose so we pulled our money together uh i had this loot the first kernel of an idea for the movie was geek versus thug um and i, I guess it's because i like juxtapositions i guess it's because you know i don't know there's just something that intrigued me about that idea geek versus thug so that was the, the first inspiration of an idea geek versus thug south bronx doing it mumblecore style. Mumblecore, for you. For those of you that are not familiar, was a style of filmmaking that came out of the mid-2000s and out of festivals like South by Southwest and even Sundance with directors like Joe Swanberg and the Duplass brothers, where it was minimal on production design, minimal on a lot of, you know, fancy, any sort of fancy effects of filmmaking. It was a lot of times very, very small budgets. Let's get some actors in an apartment, shoot something in a month and just for like $5,000 and just hatch it out, you know? So I like the kind of punk rock spirit of those mumblecore films, but we wanted to put our own spin on it because I didn't, I, I like films with good cinematography and I like, you know, I like, films that are cinematic so we knew that we were going to take this kind of mumblecore let's just DIY do it yourself kind of let's make it happen you know not wait for a studio to green light us sort of mentality but I I did want to you know I I love the idea of improvisation and a lot of those mumblecore films are only made with an outline and at some point we thought we were only going to make the trouble with an outline sometimes it's also called a scriptment where it's like a it's 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 not quite a feature script it's you know, um it's like a treatment or like an outline. Curb Your Enthusiasm is filmed that way at Larry David show, um, so then that's that's that was kind of what inspired the trouble, and um we ended up writing the script because we thought it would be too risky, just working off an outline, just for this especially for for my first feature, you know, we, we wanted some idea, some sort of plan and, um, you know, the rest is history. Do you have anything to add, I guess, to that, John?
1: Um, yeah, I, I think you, you really, uh, hit the, the important parts. I mean, it's, it's really the impressive thing in sort of watching, especially the earlier, st- uh, stages of the development of the trouble is how quickly it all came together. It was the, I feel like you, The the pre production cycle on on the trouble which is a feature was actually even faster than some of the pre production cycles on some of your some of your later shorts.
0: Yeah, uh, like it came together so quickly. I'm so happy you mentioned that because that's that's a really great point, John. Because it was almost miraculous how fast it came together. It was March of 2015 that I had the idea of the trouble. Um, Then by April we had a script, and by July we were shooting it. So that's like crazy fast in terms of pre-production to add to John's
1: point. Yeah. You and know? it was, and, and when you look back on it, it's really like it, it makes a lot of sense because it's like you're, you're, you're creative. It's actually a lot similar to the, the band, the white stripes, uh, Jack White's projects in general. Like he always said, he puts more restrictions on himself when he's feeling like when he needs more creativity, he like puts in more restrictions and more rules. To get back to the basics and it was kind of a thing where you had such a low budget but you had you kind of knew who your characters your actors are going to be you knew what your locations could be you know you had to keep it really small and because of that kind of I, I feel like it you just had to get it done quickly rather than like uh, I feel like early on a, a lot of drafts can are, are for not for a lot of productions are trying to figure out like what do we do with the wealth of resources we have Whereas when you have less, you just kind of, you figure out how to make them efficient
2: really quick.
0: Yeah, no, I'm, I'm so happy you mentioned uh, that about the white stripes and about limitations and creativity, John, because that's something I've been talking a lot about behind the scenes and with, my, with the film students and something that I've been paying attention to very carefully. For the trouble, we just happen to do that, you know, not really as like an MO, it would just kind of... Um, you know, we had those limitations, so we had to work around those limitations. But um, yeah, we all
1: had we all had day jobs pretty much too. Like right, like cast, correct. Crew, everyone He's, top to bottom was yeah, like,
0: including myself. Yeah. To do totally, totally. I I had taken uh, two weeks vacation to shoot that first stretcher principal. Ended up coming back and ended up getting fired because they were mad that I was never on the phone. Or I'm like, I took my <laughs> paid time off. Um, and I told you guys ahead of time. I was going to be totally off the grid. I didn't tell them what I was doing. They didn't even know I was a filmmaker at that company. <laughs> but I told them that yeah. I was just going to be totally gone. And I spent like almost a, almost that same stretch of pre-production, just working extra hours to make sure everything was lined up perfectly. But I just had a boss that had such a major problem with the fact that I never called to check in at my job. <laughs> but it got me fired. It was a, it was a major major reason that I got fired from my job. And, 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 in the end, it was the best possible thing that could happen to me.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, at least, at least for me at my job, it, it bought me some points. They thought it was cool. Uh, for the most part, it was just, it was an odd conversation and I was like, yeah, I'm going to take a, a week and a half off to, to shoot this movie. What? <laughs> yeah. I'm the main character. What? Yeah. <laughs> you're a marketing guy. You know?
0: That's awesome. I think it was even more awesome when you told me that there was like an intern at the company later on that like his <laughs> girlfriend was an actress and she was researching production companies and saw your face on like the trailer. She's like, wait,
1: yeah. <laughs> wait that's my name.
0: boss. Oh, was it your boss? Yeah. I didn't. Re- I, I no, forgot. no, he
1: was my intern. I was his boss. Oh, you,
0: that's yeah. That's was, awesome. Yeah. His, his, uh,
1: his girlfriend was doing research on production companies on like the TV in their living room. And all of a sudden, this guy's boss at his internship space comes up. He's like, no, it just must be some other guy.
0: That's hysterical. (laughs) So yeah, I've been thinking a lot, a a great deal about, you know, limitations and creativity. And, um, you know, I, I think a lot of times limitations, whether they're self-imposed or whether they're there already, they do foster creative, creativity and, you know, I do pay attention to directors at the highest levels have said that, and they really, you know, talk about that a lot. So, so I'm glad you mentioned that, John, about the white stripes. Um. Okay. So the next question comes from Damien. Um, this is for John. Would you be opposed to playing out of a typical style, such as going from comedy to thrillers, and if not, why? If yes, would would there be a role that you'd like to see yourself in?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a this is a cool question because because um, one could make the argument that I was playing a little bit off type in uh in the trouble um, and I, I make that so subjective because I think I think the type is very sort of. It, it changes based on, perce- on, on the individual's perception. But um, I, I think in terms of acting, jumping from sort of genre to genre and context to context, not that much changes, but there is, there is a lot that changes. Because especially when, when I'm acting, there's kind of two brains. There's the brain of the character that I'm in, and that's where I want to be 99% of the time. Um, but then there's also the brain of me, the educated watcher, you know, the viewer, um, who kind of has expectations of the genre and, and has expectations of how a character is going to behave and has that sort of, uh, you know, that makes one or two executive decisions about, like, how to time a particular, you know, like, facial expression or, like, where to put, you know, where to put a reaction, like, in in terms of a sentence, like, really micro-technical details like that. Um, And that is the kind of thing, I don't necessarily have, like, a horror instinct and a comedy instinct and a thriller instinct, but rather, uh, I try, I think it's important to just sort of absorb the general tone of what the director's trying to do uh, and how the other characters are playing off of it. And at least for me, the way I think about it, is almost how much of this character understands he's in a movie like how much of, how much of this character knows he's in a movie versus and that all of this is versus how much of this character knows that all of this is real and i think conventionally you would say oh well acting you want it to be 100 percent real all the time and that's true but also Like, when something really, in real life, when something's really crazy is happening to you, you're kind of like, yo, am I in a movie right now? (laughs) You know, you have that, like, that, like, there's that certain level of, like, disbelief. And, uh, and I think that's the kind of little thing that you can be self aware of, um, that'll make, that makes sort of, when a director's saying, like, that wasn't believable enough or that's not quite whatever, it's the kind of thing that, like, maybe a novice actor would be confused by what, like, what they need to calibrate and a lot of that in my mind is the calibration of like how real is all of this to this character because most of the time if you're a person in in real life your frame of reference for a lot of situations comes from media you've ingested whether it's movies or novels or stories but you're like oh i feel like this famous person or this character that i know about from watching tv or reading books or watching movies
0: totally i've Um, I've even heard of uh people you know criminals that you know used to watch scarface to psych them up i've seen documentaries about people that like oh yeah we would watch scarface over and over and over again to kind of get into that kind of gangster sort of character and these are actual gangsters that were would say stuff like that you know
1: yeah yeah but also like another thing is like uh in terms of what, well, yeah, that's a great example. Cause especially now that's, that's turned back around and now you have multiple generations of not just like actors and uh, filmmakers, but like musicians and rappers and the iconography of Scarface has now become much bigger than Scarface even was. And like if you, if you were to make a Scarface reboot now on some level, Tony Montana knows he's not just the like Tony Montana, he's inspiring a whole movement across generations.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, right? And and that's happened throughout the history of cinema, by the way, like especially, you know, American cinema in the 1970s, the 1970s is heralded by a lot of filmmakers as like that was like a, a golden era where there was like this a, auteur-driven films like and directors like Scorsese and Robert Altman and you know, uh, Bogdanovich and all all kinds of different directors really came out of the 70s that you know like Sam Peckinpah and all these different people that you know were like pioneers and like really pushed the form and Quentin Tarantino was inspired by those sort of directors and Paul Thomas Anderson you know all, you know all sorts of directors that are working now but the 70s they were inspired by the French New Wave because in France directors like François Truffaut and Jean-Luc Jean-Luc Godard, they were pushing the envelope and the French New Wave was to filmmaking what punk rock was for music, you know. And ironically, the French New Waves, they were inspired by American directors like John Ford and Alfred Hitchcock and D.W. Griffith. So you have, you know, people that were inspired by the French in America that, you know, but those... Those those French filmmakers were inspired by earlier American filmmakers, so it's 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 kind of cool how inspiration kind of cycles into new things and in ways to push the art form forward.
1: Yeah, uh, Damien also asked that question. I didn't really touch on it too much, but he's saying uh, where where I'd like to kind of see myself, and that, that's an, that's that's an, a cool one because. i I just i'm sort of just excited to get a little older um just because i think where i am as an actor i think my range and my my options open up a lot in the next 10 to 20 years um and i think that's because of the sort of uh that the type of you know what like the trouble is a good example because i have more of a comedy background but that's not a comedy movie you know it's, it's a it's a it, it falls under the purview of like a stylish crime thriller, essentially. Um, in a lot of ways, although, but it although it at did, the least, it's a funny guy, you yeah, know, that, that's
0: actually, that's, it's a good point, John, because, uh, that's one of those things of, you know, things evolve over time. And, you know, when the first inception, of the trouble was certainly, and when I first certainly had that first kernel of an idea of like Greek, uh, geek versus thug, you know, it, it certainly was more comedic um, in tone that it ended up evolving into. It's just over numerous cuts and as it's shooting, and we always knew it was going to kind of have a Western flavor, you know, it it, it mm-hmm. just with, with each thing, it sort of evolved a little bit more. And I think it, it kind of evolved into a, a darker tone a little bit, you know?
1: Yeah. And it's, and it's all, you know, the, the character of Billy in, in that universe is, you know, it's a character who's not the most, uh, you know, he's not the most, uh, naturally charismatic guy. He's not the most good looking guy, but he, he thinks a few steps ahead of most people and, and he can, he can usually make them laugh. Yeah. You know, it's like that's, that's like a, a get out of jail free card that he taps into. And I think that's one of the, the good ways, like Iron Man or Better Call Saul. Neither of those are comedies. Those are very serious thrillers but they both have really funny guys as the lead character true you know, Yeah. who who are constantly getting out of sticky situations because they're they're thinking a step ahead and they can make a joke about it so yeah. i think i think there's a pretty natural way to do that and i think there's i'm in a lucky spot as an actor because i think in my 30s 40s and 50s i get a lot more options than in my 20s and 30s that's
0: a good way to look at it john Not everyone. that's 100 percent true actually i think you know yeah i mean we can Mean you could name dozens of really famous actors, you know male leads that are in their forties and fifties um it's not how many could you name that are in their twenties right now? I can't name I don't yeah think more than five people that are known yeah, and they're for- all really hot
2: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: I know, but it's like you can't name them right
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, they're in the prime of their looks and the prime of their youth, but you know, um, you know, they're not commanding those, those big salaries. And it's like, interesting
1: to see a lot of times the, the guys who stick around and like display real lasting power are not the ones. Are, are I get that wrong a lot, you know?
2: Yeah, like, I wh- know. which is
1: funny that that's one of my blind spots as an actor. There's a, I, I'm usually wrong about the pretty boys that that turn out to be like the real deal.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, it's tough for a lot of people. I I, I'm actually kind of good at predicting that. Like when I first saw there's certain actors, when I first saw them and like their first roles, like were really, you know, non-substantial, I'm like, Hey, that, like, I was like, that kid is going to be a major star, you know? And I've, I've, I've said that. uh, said that certainly said that about Ryan Gosling when I first saw him in the believer and even Timothy Chalamet was now really blown Mm -hmm. up you know he's one of the younger guys he's but he's one of the only ones it's like he's the one you know
1: Pattinson you called Pattinson too
0: true yeah 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 so he's he's an interesting actor especially after seeing good time he really the Safdie brothers film it really he sort of earned my respect after that yeah um all right so good question from Damian We'll jump into one of Michael's next questions. How do you determine what budget is best for the actors? Hmm. So it there's really... Th- uh, the budget of a film is so embedded into the cast because unfortunately or fortunately or however you want to look at it, it's just the nature of the way it is, is that actors sort of have a value almost kind of like the stock market, you know, um, that at any given point in time, um, depending on the budget, you know, it's like, you know, right now, like at, at a, you know, Brad Pitt might command $25 million and like, that's his, that's his fee, you know? And so, you know, the budget of the film has to be at least, let's say a hundred million to get an actor like Brad Pitt so they could afford the 25 million. And then, you know, um, Brad Pitt's not going to be in a movie with people that aren't famous typically. So then, you know, um, it, it just, it, it, it makes the budget skyrocket. So a lot of times budget is really connected with talent, how known that talent is agents get involved and that's why a lot of times, you know, actors like Brad Pitt, why their fee is so big because you have agents that are getting 10% of that. And then they, they want to command the highest possible salary for their clients. Um, and so then that's what drives up the budget. On a small indie film like what we did, um, it's, 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 it's a different game. But it's important to note that there's what's called above-the-line the above the line budget, which is the stars of the film, the director, um, the producers, and then the below the line line items of the budget, which are, you know, all the production elements, you know, the other crew members, like the production design, the locations, the catering and everything like that. So in a small film like ours, the below the line budget is typically a lot bigger than the above the line budget. Um, and a lot of times on a on a big budget feature film, that could be a totally different story because once you're getting into the hundred million dollar price range, you know, things like the catering and um let's say the cost of film stock, that's not gonna necessarily outweigh the above the line budget, which is, you know, fees for actors on that tier. Um, anything that you want to add to that, John?
1: Um, it's yeah. Uh, one, one thing that I know people talk about a lot on that, in that area is just not, it's, where do you draw the line between, um, writer and producer and like, like how, how much do you want to give yourself? How much do you want to be boxed in by those, realities and i and i I find that most of the time people are talking about it the instinct is always to say oh well you always have to you know uh be creative don't think about that stuff too much you know the 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 studio is always going to want to change it later um but i don't know that i agree with that outlook inherently and i think a lot of the time it it does like specifically in something as as real as budget i mean maybe through some miracle you'll get someone for cheap or something but i think that's one of the safe areas where Right along those lines. You know, right to the don't think about every line item of the budget while you're writing, but think about what factors you can you can make a move to afford and like how many scenes you can afford to put them in. No, that's a great point. uh and like that you know, maybe you can give yeah. someone really famous a small role uh and make that a pivotal cornerstone of your story without having them be in fifty minutes of your ninety minute feature.
0: No, that. I'm so glad you mentioned that, John, because that kind of dovetails to, to, you know, the inception of the idea of this uh, film was, you know, like we, uh, what I'm happy that we did is we created a new film and a new story and new characters to fit this sort of DIY budget that we could shoot it for. What we didn't do is try to take our original idea, which was instant gratification and then just say, "Hey, let's just pool all our money together and make that into like a super low budget film because it would have changed the story." So, uh, smart filmmaking and smart writing is writing for the budget in mind, for sure.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um. All right, but great questions. Okay, so. Uh, Victor's next question is, did a lot of the actors on set improv on certain scenes? And it's a two part question. Do you like when actors improv or stick to the script? So I'll, I'll answer it and then I'll let John talk about it. Um, There was a lot of the actors that did improvise on, on many of the scenes, but um, some actors improvised a lot more than others. So that's where I'm actually happy where we didn't just work from an outline because there it's important to note that some actors like John are very fluid with improv. They like improv. They enjoy improv. They thrive on it. And then there's other actors that would rather have their scenes memorized and they work off the script and that sort of thing. And do I like it when an actors improv? I, I personally do. Um, I'm not somebody that's precious about my words because to me, the outcome is the most important thing. So whether I wrote it on the script or whether the actor came up with something better than what I wrote and they said it more in their language, you know, I'll, I'll give you guys an example. But but either way, um, that to me, the outcome is the most important thing. And so that's why I do encourage improvisation. So there's a scene that I wrote... Uh, along with mark in the trouble and um where was the three villains they're sitting in a basement and they're playing dominoes and one of the actors uh his name was Mel he said to me he's like zeph you know these guys it doesn't seem like they would say this it seems like you wrote it a little too clean and they would be a little bit more vulgar I was like well make it your own Mel, you know, like, you know, if, if you think what I wrote is two PG, you know, or PG 13 and you want to make a rated R make it, you know, however it rolls off the tongue, go for it. And, and, and they did. And, and it turned out better. Um, so there, you know, there's a ton of examples of that. What, what would you like to add, John?
1: Yeah, I think, uh, I think it's a, it's a really good way, especially when you have so few, when you're doing things very indie micro budget, when you have so few resources at your disposal in the first place. Uh, one, one thing that I, I realized from being involved with the production of the trouble that I've sort of passed along as, as a, as an observation has been, you kind of get a few extra, it's like you get an extra draft of your script. If you if you like specifically cast good improvisers yeah um, you almost get to like skip an extra rewrite and let them do it hundred uh, which which is a huge when you're thinking about a million other things even if you're you know your story is perfect in your head do you have the time and the means and the resources to like write down every little description of every little thing you want and like really get every piece of dialogue right it's like well unless you're being supported by a massive system, um, a lot of the times that, that's not the case. and I know in, in the case of the the, uh, the trouble you'd, you'd kind of encourage me to uh, improvise as much as I wanted to or and, and kind of swing as much as I, I wanted. So my approach there um, actually to, to go into the details of it a little bit, the script for the trouble it was a complete it was a com- fully complete script. It had been rewritten a few times. Um, if it had been shot word for word, it would be the same story and the same amount of beats and the same structure and it just would have been, you know, the characters would have been a little you know, a little less molded into those particular actors. Like it was a it was a fully functional completed script uh to improvise on top of. Um and my approach at least, every day on set I would come with my sides and while everyone was like sort of setting up and uh getting ready, um, I would find a little quiet corner, with my sides, and I would just kind of like go through. I would just sort of focus in and like go through the beats of the dialogue in my head and go back and forth and like just think about like going through those conversations as Billy and thinking what what would this character how would this character phrase this like what's their frame of reference and I would literally take that the size of the day and I would like scribble out the lines and write the exact same thing just the sentence was structured a little differently or i put in like a i put in like a little bit of poker terminology um just because i i thought of like a poker metaphor that worked and i'm like that's how billy would think about it anyway that's how the idea would pop in his head or like i would just notice little things like maybe something he said later on beat three of a conversation i was just like uh he'd think of that first that would pop out of his mouth and then he'd try to double back around it and then get caught on the third beat and like Greg. Would, would kind of figure out that that's what I was doing and like weasel it back out of me because uh, that was another thing is I would write sort of I would rewrite the lines in a way that was a little more on the nose of the character in my perception of them but then when I would take sort of the in the scene when I was improvising with someone, we, we'd take cues from each other and then what we'd actually record at the end of it was a third draft on top of like a third rewrite on top of the rewrite that I was looking on my page, which was on top of the rewrite that you did from the script before that. Yeah. So it's,
0: which is awesome. That was
1: kind of the mechanics of it.
0: Yeah. It's fascinating to hear um, your perspective on the process because I like how you said um, sort of then it, it molds to you as a person intertwined with, the character, you know, which I think is, is the best thing that you could hope for with encouraging improvisation, because then it becomes a lot, you know, it just becomes real and it become there's a level of authenticity that I think, you know, a performer like yourself yeah. brings to the table with it.
1: Oh, oh, and I just remembered another important thing. Um, I, I specifically did not read the full script. Um, oh yeah. The, oh, we I, should,
0: we should, hatch that out for a minute because i i think i i asked you not to because and the other characters as well because um especially you and maria who played marisol because for me it was really important that this film that was told in four different chapters from the perspectives of these four different characters that they only had the information that they actually would in real life if they were actually going through this situation and for me the perspectives of these different characters and the shifting perspectives within the story that was told in a non-chronological format i i just wanted you to focus on the situation that you would be in as you were inhabiting that situation as opposed to the overall story so i'm i'm so happy you mentioned that because i almost uh you know, I forgot to mention that,
1: yeah, yeah, and that's definitely the thing I was talking about earlier was like being able to calibrate like how much how much of of your character knows they're in a movie yeah. um because because a character that that doesn't know they're in the movie is is the character that's most likely to wonder if they're in a movie, and you know like it's a paradox to it, and like that would have been a whole extra layer of complication I feel
0: like we're in a movie right like, now with this whole coronavirus. <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, straight up. But like, like, cause then you have to think about if the actor knows what's going to happen to the character and the character doesn't, now the actor has to make decisions about how good is this character's intuition? How good is this character's instinct? Like, what kind of, like, cause a lot of that is, a lot of that the director dictates to the actor, but then there, there's little things like when, when does the face, t- face twist upon hearing something that may not even be used in the editing stage, but like, whether or not that take even exists could be jumbled up by that, you know?
0: Yeah. Good stuff. Um, So this question is for you, John is voice acting something you'd ever consider doing. What challenges do you think it'd bring and how would you get into character as opposed to a live action role? That question is from Damien. And I want to say before John gets into this question, I would love to see him doing like an animated character for some movie. I think that would be awesome.
1: Oh yeah, I would, I would love to do that. Uh, that work pays pretty well. Um, I really, especially with all the lockdown, I should be working on my reel because that's pretty much the only thing standing in my way from doing that is I just need to really get a really good voiceover reel and I, I know the right people to talk to you about that. Um, I, I kind of started, kind of the way I, I, I started doing any sort of performance at all when I was a kid, I would just do impressions of like famous people on TV or whoever the president was at the time. You know, first Clinton, then Bush, then Obama. Uh, Like, I I would always just do little impressions and I kind of started as an impressionist. So um, the voice, the vocal intonations and and stuff like that is something I've just quietly been obsessed with my whole life. That's definitely something I'd like to do. Um, yeah, if,
0: you, if you were like some like fish uh, character in like a Finding Nemo type of movie like, that would <laughs> <that'd> be amazing
1: <laughs> yeah 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 we've got a find Nemo already <laughs> uh, like, <some> t- <laughs> totally ridiculous cartoony thing yeah. one of the things uh, yeah, the thing about getting into the character this applies to improv a lot because you know I do a lot of like improv shows on stage and a lot of times you do wind up doing a cartoony character and a cartoony impression and a cartoony voice and uh, that, and I always try to have like an anchor, like a non-verbal anchor of like just like a grunt or like a, a noise that that character would make. That sort of might be like how they clear their throat and start a sentence. Uh, so like if like someone's like an angry radio host or something like that, I might have like, Arr! and it's like, oh, we gotta listen, listen, the new story coming up today. You know, like you do something like like so you can just jump dive right into it, and that, that's a nice little shortcut that you can use.
0: For, for vocal text and approaches. Nice. That's awesome. Um so this is Michael's third question that I guess we'll both tackle. What is the most important thing a screenwriter, director can do to make things easier for the actors? I think showing a level of empathy for what the actors have to go through um I think that's, that's for me, important as a director is to environment is so important for me as a director, creating the right environment, um, where the actors at least feel that they're respected and that, um, they're comfortable to work. You know, I think that's, uh, that's something that's ultra important. What would you say, John?
1: Um, there, yeah, there's a few things that, that pop in, into my head. Um, cause when I wrote this question, I was, th- I was just thinking about like, what, what worked well on, on set with the trouble. And then, um, and it's funny what I'm thinking about is more, it's more like what a, more what an actor can do, but I I think it it works both ways. Uh, well, I guess,
0: yeah, weird, yeah, I think. What, yeah. What would you, what, what, what's the kind of thing that, is important for you as an actor that like a director could do for the performers, you know, in, in order for the actors to sort of flourish and be able to give the best performances.
1: The, the model that I like the best example model, and this is funny because we did, I think we did this on the trouble, but you probably, have you ever gotten, you never got like, had like a, like glasses, right? You never like went to like an optometrist, like get your eyes or your prescription checked out or anything like that. Right. no.
0: No. Uh, I probably need well, it's to It's funny. a lot uh, of, a lot of
1: the process is similar because when you're, okay. So when you're getting your eye prescription figured out, you like you sit, you put your face in this machine and what they do is just rapid fire. They just test different glasses and they just say one or two and you, you say which one was clearer and then they instantly move on to the next one and they go uh, one or two. And then every once in a while they throw in a, they throw in a three or four because they're, they're unsure But the idea is they're moving fast enough that you don't get to second guess it. And some people still do second guess it and then they get uh, the wrong prescription and their eyes get worse for a year. Uh, But you learn to just answer efficiently and move quickly, but always put it in one or two, which is closer, which is going in the right direction. And I think that that's the, that's the key thing is that the actors and the director always have to be talking in terms of a poll. Like if I like if I'm going I, – because I, there's always room for interpretation on the script when you're like, okay, I'm reading this, and it's never an instruction manual. It always winds up having some flowery language about, like, uh, you know, he, uh, he, he, he's swirling in secrets, and it's like that – you decide what that means. So, like, I have – what I usually like to do is I have my idea of what I think that means. And then I'm ready to pitch that as like, do you want it more X, Y, Z? And then I think, okay, what if I'm totally off? Then what could it mean? Something totally different ABC. And then I'll ask the question, are we talking more X, Y, Z or ABC? Because usually the answer I get is neither. But that at least gives me a triangulation point. So I know we all have the same thing in our head.
0: That's it. I love your analogy about the optometrist because a lot of times i think about things in terms of pulling focus you know i mean when we're on set and we're framing a shot we're literally pulling focus and a lot of times when you're when you're actually pulling focus on a camera a lot of times you're you're adjusting things from one extreme to the other extreme to find that Mm -hmm. focal point that's crisply in focus so sometimes you you know you might you turn the lens one way where it's wildly out of focus and then you turn the lens the other way where it's wildly out of focus in order to sort of calibrate it where it's, it's perfectly racked in focus. And I think that's kind of similar to the optometrist. And as a director, you're constantly being asked questions and a smart actor is going to have certain questions. And as a director, you better have answers, you know, and so it's it's about that constant rapid firing of questions all day, and you know that decisive nature of just having the answers. So I think that analogy is 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 a is a really good one.
1: Yeah, yeah. When you're dealing with with like a, a director has so much responsibility and has to answer so many questions, and like the worst thing that could happen is if they mishear or misinterpret your question. So it's just like, what can you do to make your question? Impossible to misinterpret, you know. Like, or rather, no matter what, you get valuable feedback. Like you, because it's also it's never a yes or no question. It's not do does my character know this? You know, there's layers to it, especially because it's like no one's totally in the dark about anything. You know, everyone sort of predicts something's going to happen to them at some point. You know, someone has not and you know there's so a lot of it is finding like a, a subtle nuance thing,
2: and it's
0: yeah. And I think I think yeah, yeah it's, it's a, you know kind of along with what you're saying I think it it kind of um you you're kind of saying what you know how did, how could you make your job easier for the director by having concise communication and I think then it works both ways I think finding a rapport with your actors is so important I've I've said this time and time again if if I'm directing thirty different actors I feel like I'm thirty different directors because I think my com- I try to tailor my communication style depending on the needs of the actors because different actors have different forms of training. They have different ways that they like, of different ways that they like working. Um, there's different preferences, you know. There's there's different ways that they sort of get into the zone. Um, just like people have different foods that they like to eat. Some people are meat vegans. Some people are carnivores. You know. Some people, are, you know mix it up all the time so it's it's just it's like how do you treat guests in your house like you know are you gonna bring the vegan a a plate of steak no you know so it's, it's kind of the same thing for me when i'm directing actors you know like sometimes i'll um i like to give my direction to actors off to the side instead of in front of everybody else sometimes it's because of that purpose of conveying information like i don't think the other actors in that scene need the information that I'm going to convey to that actor. You know, it's going to maybe cloud their judgment of what's going on for their performance. So I'd rather give direction off to the side. Um, and then sometimes you you kind of gauge whether it doesn't matter whether you give that direction off to the side. You just give it out in the open. That also depends on the actors. So I think tailoring your communication based off the needs of that actor um, is really important. Then also, it, and it's, it's going to sound sort of corny because a lot of people have said it and it could sound cliche, but having like a safety net for the actors. But I think that's fundamental in terms of the relationship between a director and their actors because you have to understand that actors are putting themselves out there. And a lot of the seasoned actors that you're working with, they've been burned before by somebody so to have that trust you know to instill that trust that saying hey listen i I have your back you know i'm not going to make you look silly up there i'm not going to make you look stupid i'm going to we're going to make you we're going to craft the best performance that um it could be you know and um we care about the work just like you do um, and just having an empathy and respect for the craft that they bring to the table, I think that's um ultra important for making things easier for the actors, but for yielding the best work and uh fostering the best collaborations. But good question. Um, all right, so we're gonna go into one of Victor's questions, which is, Do you think? characters that are relatable have a stronger impact on how the movie is perceived. I think it is important to have relatable characters, not in terms of, Hey, does this character dress the same as I do? Do they even look the same as I do? But is there something innately um, relatable about the experience that they're going through? Is there a way to empathize with that character? I think that's super important on the impact about it and that ties into story itself and that's why we can connect with certain sorts of movies that's why people like star wars have they ever been to space no but could they could they connect with luke skywalker in some sort of capacity yeah you know same reason why people connect with rocky they've never went into the ring but they can identify as the underdog in some sort of capacity same thing with the trouble. It's a story based off the underdog kind of being underestimated and then coming out ahead in some sort of way, you know? And I think that creating characters that are relatable is, yeah, it's super important. What would you like to say? What do you think about that, John?
1: Yeah, I think, I think, uh, I think it's the most important thing. Um, by a long shot because you could have the most compelling uh the most like crazy meaningful plot of all time but if if the characters aren't relatable enough i'll never find out about it you know that already that there's a reason why i didn't finish homer's odyssey like i'm sure it's a better plot than anything i've ever liked but none of those characters have said something i said or 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 something like that. You know, when I'm watching a, when I'm watching a movie like a character needs to either walk and talk like someone I know and I love and I care about uh that resembles them that I kind of like, oh, that's like yeah, you know, my cousin. Uh I know that person. Oh, that that person's mom says the same exact sentence that my mom says. Once you see that, your brain gives you permission to like invest yourself in the story and figure out what's happening and then you you have the grounds to appreciate all that. But if you don't have that sort of baseline relatability uh, at, the, at the outset at the pure basis then I think you're you're limited in what you're able to communicate to your, your audience you're only able to really use the language of of genre and you're only able to use the language of of self reference uh, which I think I think I I see things that way because I've done so much sketch comedy and like a lot of times that's what like a, a is a memorable sketch versus a a funny sketch that people laugh at in the moment and forget about is like when you're hitting tropes and you're hitting uh genre like it, it's it's one way to communicate it's a language that an audience understands and is entertained by but uh the relatability of just human character is, is what makes something like uh the big six stand out where the you know, there's so much to latch onto and relate to. It's like whether or not you know someone who drives Uber, whether or not you know someone who's an open uh, whether or not you know someone who's gone through uh, a serious illness, whether or not you've, you've gone through, so you, you know someone or you have yourself awkward parents that take a, an awkward situation and make it 95 times more awkward. You just have to relate to one of those tent poles of that story and you're, you're on the ride for the rest of it. You're ready to accept every other element of that story but if, if you don't have any one of those it doesn't matter how good of a story it is if you don't know anyone who's a comedian or an uber driver or that's gone through a horrible sickness or that has awkward parents if you've been lucky enough to avoid all those things in your life especially comedians uh then then that's no matter how good that story is, it's not going to hit you. You know, there's always going to be one hater, you know, and that's why that's the math of
0: it. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you, John. Well said. Um, and I noticed the people in particularly in regards to the trouble, I, I noticed there's definitely a common denominator of people that respond to the movie versus people that don't. I think people that maybe I've said this to you before, but people that identify as the underdog in some sort of capacity have identified with the movie the strongest and they could come from all sorts of walks of life. I mean, you know, um, <laughs> you, you've seen that at certain screenings. Um, we had one. one yeah. Yeah. Movie. Yeah. No,
1: in fact, I, I think, I think I've seen enough to, to say curiously enough, um, that audiences who would immediately, Sort of identify as the geek archetype are the are the least likely to <laughs> relate to Billy. I would say I know that's the funny <laughs> thing. Is, Yeah,
0: yeah anyway, like I've like literally that. I've been in a bar with John where there's literal gangsters that are like I fucking love that Billy character. You know, it's like <laughs> who was that that played Billy? It's like that's John Vogel. He's here at the at the after party. It's like let's go buy him some shots because I love that character. It's like yeah, that Billy was so great, and it was just like it blew my mind that. They, <laughs> you know, because on a surface level, it seemed like that they would relate more to Enzo than they would to Billy. But in their minds, they were more like the Billy, you know. Which was, I don't know, it was, mm-hmm. it, was it was amazing, you know. Um, but yeah, relatability. Uh, you know, John, you said it perfectly, so I'm, I'm not going to even add anything to that. Um uh, actually, at this point, I want to open up the floor. And Michael, join the chat. Um, open up your video screen and take yourself off mute. Michael, are you there? Yes. Hello? Hello.
2: Hey, Michael. Hey, hey guys.
0: So, Michael, you, you at, sent in some great questions ahead of time. Just wanted to see if you wanted to, uh, you know, base off our conversation, just add any questions
2: on the spot. Um, okay yes um, when writing a script um, like let's say you have a story and there's a character that seems to have a more fleshed out story than everybody else like how would you deal with that balance like that problem
0: you know I've one thing that I've been thinking about lately is redrafting scripts in the point of view with the specific character so let's say you have a draft and you're like you know what this character was fleshed out but there's this other character that i think they, they they need more work just going through a just an entire draft just based and just with the perspective of everything that's going on with that character to me that's um it was advice that i heard um, from John August and Craig Mazin. John August is a screenwriter who works a lot with Tim Burton and he, ma- he wrote the movie Big Fish and I think he wrote um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Um, Craig ma- Mazin wrote Chernobyl and they have a, a podcast called the Script Notes Podcast where they were talking about redrafting from the perspective of a specific character no, it seems like a lot of work, but I think it really pays off. So that's that's something that has been my mo recently.
2: Cool. Yeah,
1: and I think I think one one thing there. I mean, that's always a good sign if you have one character that's particularly well developed. I mean, that's a sign that all of your characters are are going to get there um, by necessity at a certain point. Uh, I wound up with with the script. I'm I'm kind of I'm like in the halfway stages on now. I'm like doing like my I did my last outline and I'm doing my first like complete draft now. But one of the I ran into that issue and one of the things I came up with was I wrote down all the characters I considered to be part of the core ensemble and then I wanted to break them down. Um I I broke everyone down into three wares. Uh and the three wares were uh where do you sleep? Um, where do you work and where would you rather be like when you're daydreaming and i and i and i answered those questions for each one of those characters and then i answered those questions for each one of the three acts because the changes depending on you know the the status quo changes from act to act so for some characters you know maybe they have they live in a different place so where they sleep or they have a different job that they're where they work changed, uh or their dream of what they wanted has changed and either way it it kind of changes who they are and how they're going to behave. But once you kind of answer those three questions, now, it's, now you're trying to figure out how do I write a scene that answers that question for the audience, that shows them, oh, here's where this person lives. Here's what their, their, their home looks like, or here's what the environment of their home, who do they live with? Is it chaotic? Is it peaceful? What about their job? Is it chaotic? Is it peaceful? Is their home and their job chaotic? Is their home chaotic and their job peaceful? Is their home peaceful and their job chaotic? Those are, you know, that's that's the kind of thing that makes a character fleshed out. Uh, so just thinking about that in terms of those pieces made it almost easy to just sort of fill
2: in the blanks. Nice. Cool. I never thought of it that way. That's cool.
0: John, and John, is that something? Um, have you been reading books on the topic? because there's, there's yeah. a lot of books that... Yeah, I don't know if I sold that from a book
1: or, or a podcast, or if it just, by filling my brain with it, that came out. No, it, it's, um, really,
0: it's, it's really important what you're saying, and um, there's a book that's called The Art of Dramatic Writing that talks about that sort of concept a lot that I highly recommend okay. for any, any yeah, um, aspiring out. screenwriters out there, and uh, and I, I took Ron Howard's, master class and he, he was talking about that book and i picked up that book and um it, it, it kind yeah. of is in line it, it it talks about the creative interpretation of human motives and um it kind of gives a lot of guidelines and a lot of questions you know for for your characters and for their development it's like well you know what kind of socioeconomic background is your character from like because if they came from a working class household versus an upper middle-class household, that's going to change the way that they speak probably, you know, it's going to, what, what level of education do they have? What are, what's their personality traits? So it it gives you kind of these sort of bullet point ideas, you know, and questions to think about kind of how John was outlining certain questions about, you know, where do they work and, you know, that sort of thing. And, you know, that's those, those asking question, the right questions, when you're thinking about your characters will help you differentiate those characters from each other. And m- more importantly, they'll help differentiate from you as the writer, because that's something that can happen a lot is where, you know, um, especially on early drafts or for, for people that are, you know, not as established writers where a lot of the characters start to sound the same. So you, you don't want to, you know, you want to kind of differentiate those voices, but good question. Um, is there any other questions you want to ask before we sort of wrap it up?
2: Oh, I was uh well, I was going to ask a question about um because you you were talking about socioeconomic economic background of like the actors. I was going to ask like the you the characters. It, the characters, sorry, the characters. I was going to ask you if you've had a chance to see um the show *Effortless for Family*. Uh, I've, heard
0: of, I've heard of it is, is that the show? Is that the Bill Burr show, John?
1: Yeah. Is that the Bill Burr animated show?
2: I think it is.
1: Yeah.
0: I haven't seen Isn't it, but it I've like heard the, of it
2: about it. In, you
1: know. I've seen the first, uh, the first two seasons.
2: Okay. All right. I was going to say like with respect to how well they represent like the socioeconomic economic background of those characters, like, what is your guys, like, opinion of that? Like, it's, I don't think I've seen anything like that before. So, I haven't seen like yeah,
0: it, but I do, I am a fan of, uh, Bill Burr as a performer and as a comedian, particularly, um, so, you know, give it a shot. I'll check it out. I've heard it's a very vulgar yeah, show. <laughs> it's really good.
1: Because it's a period piece in the 70s, right, in the 1970s, and it's, um... And it's it's kind of like a snapshot of like right when that sort of the blue collar working class promise started to like bottom out and stop being a thing. So you're like, Wilbur plays the patriarch of this family that's just sort of just getting crushed, like economically in all ways. Like he's just getting totally effed over in every possible way, and just living in the just living in the anger at it and directing it in all the wrong places. It's a, it's a really powerful. It, it's one of those things. It's kind of like BoJack Horseman. I need to take breaks because it's too heavy, but it's, it's really well done.
0: I haven't seen right. BoJack Horseman. I got to check that one out. It looks funny from all the previews that I've seen. From it. Oh,
1: I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't describe, I wouldn't lead with funny. I yeah, mean, it it's is, not, but it's, I not,
0: it's it. not like a comedy.
1: It's, uh, the, you know, like the premise way, sort of
0: funny, I think, you know,
1: it it is, it is a comedy show. Like kind of the same way where it was where I was kind of saying you can take a thriller and just put funny people in it uh this is this is like a funny show uh and they're and they're just going as dramatic as possible
2: gotcha, within gotcha. the
1: structure of the movie.
2: Yeah. yeah so it goes it okay. gets
0: intense huh
2: it's one one, one last question my last question is this all right, I know you guys have seen the Shining. absolutely. Right? Okay, all right. The scene where um, his wife walks up to him while he's at the bar, and you respond to her, he's like, "Are you effing crazy? Like, do you think that that part was like a like comedic, like meant to be comedic by like the director?" <laughs> no, I,
0: I don't. I don't think so. But I I do think that um, there's comedy in. In in drama you know there's there uh, whether something is purposely funny or people laugh when they see it in the movie theater because that's just yeah. the way the cookie sort of crumbled um i think i think that either way it's it's sort of valid and what i've noticed that you know just with that sort of concept in in general like from screening the trouble with so many different audiences it's fascinating to see what different yeah. audiences laugh at versus some
2: audiences, you know, it you know, it's like, it's
0: kind of like in, that. In
2: your, movie, in your movie, the trouble, the scene that I, I didn't laugh at, but I thought it was, it was like weird. It was like, I thought to myself, was well, that supposed to be like funny. The part where he was, the bartender, um, break was tied up in the chair. There was something that he said, I can't remember exactly what it was, but they were walking up to him. And they said something, I guess they were trying to intimidate him. And he responded and it was like funny. And I was like, you know, did the director mean for that to be funny or did it just happen like that?
0: Um, was it the part where Pitt, after Pitt, visits the bar and then he's 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 sort of drugged in the house?
2: Yes. And I think, I think they, they tie him up and they're like asking him for information of where another actor is, I would have to watch. Oh, it you're talking. It okay,
0: you're talking about Gus. So when Gus, who owns the liquor store, is tied up in the basement, and then there's some sort of banter. Um. Yes. Yeah, I mean, there's some funny things that are said for sure. It's it's kind of like you know the same type of humor. Very tough guy, funny. Yeah, it's like that good. Exactly good that, yeah. I was gonna say like good. The same way like Goodfellas to me is like a comedy. You know, like a, it's like a gangster movie, but like it's it's hysterical. You know, it like to me, it's like it holds up with any comedy. You know,
2: yeah, yeah. So it's, it's uh,
1: it's it's, like, it's also there's a there's a thing of it where um, to, to answer your question about The Shining, the two is that when yeah, you know, coming from the the background of comedy, from you know being someone who is constantly studying comedy, making it a point to study comedy. One of the things that's interesting is, is people who are great artists, what they find funny will surprise you because oh, yeah. they probably have a very specific taste of what they find funny and it's not mass market. Right. Funny. It's a like gallows like, humor.
0: Um, and, I it, mean, people have told me, to pe- people have told me that before they're like, you know, you have, uh, I don't know. They said, I, I have like, right. I, I probably have the type of, sense of humor that you know stand-up comics would joke about you know like you know things that are probably inappropriate and really fucked up (laughs) but that i find
1: that's that's what that's what we laugh at
0: yeah that's what i'm saying (laughs) that i that you know that's that's kind of you know my type of humor um yeah and and
1: mine too i mean
0: about the things that comics would uh, joke around backstage you know like probably not even say on stage you know or i don't know you know it's just uh,
1: when we were shooting the trouble the only thing i would watch in my own time was tim and eric awesome show which is like the weirdest most abstract surreal comedy but that's what i was into at the time and i don't it, i don't think it i don't think it like overtly bled through in the way i performed but it's definitely you know it was definitely sort of in my mind and i also think in terms of I think on some level, what you see on camera is going to be a little bit of a reflection of the vibe that was on set and, like, mm-hmm. just sort of what energy was there between the cast and the crew, and, and all that is going to be reflected in the footage. And for most of the trouble, yeah, totally it was an interesting case where it was, you know, there was not a lot of resources. Most of the people involved in the production were making some sort of personal sacrifice to be there. Um, mm-hmm. But it was super, like, everyone was having a really fun time. Like the energy on set was always very positive. I was always joking around a lot, but like everyone became, it was like camping, you know, it was like, it was almost like camping with friends. I
0: always say that. uh, Yeah, uh, A lot of people make the analogy that when you're in production, I heard a famous producer say it one time when I was in a room doing a workshop and he was like, he's like, when you're in production, it's like you're at camp, you know? And the reason for that is because it's like, you almost forget about the outside world. Like you were, so, mm-hmm. sort of locked in and and hope i mean hopefully that's how it should be you know is that you know you're sort of focused in on what's going on and then those relationships like you know the, the friendships that you have on set and you know just kind of what's going on on set and it's like you know becomes becomes pretty tight you know
2: yeah, yeah.
1: and it was definitely a thing where like the as an actor you could tell like you could tell from the crews or you could tell how the crew was reacting, like how like an audience of like film nerds was going to react to the movie. So Uh, it was like, it was, it was almost fun to have a little bit of a live feedback and like almost have like sort of the loop, the feedback loop you have in sketch or stand up a little bit to kind of see like, Oh no, no, how are people? Oh, okay, cool. I'm going to keep doing this. You know, like those kind of things.
0: I, you know, and just one last point uh, on your question, Michael, you know, like when we, when we, Screen the trouble at um you know we've done so many screenings at this point, but I will say when we screened it at the Pit, which is an improv theater that John is heavily involved with, um, you know I mean it screened like a like a it totally just screened like a comedy you know everybody was cracking up at every joke, um there so that so that was pretty awesome screening for that crowd nice. over there. Nice, John. Thank you so much for being on the cast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was a blast. Thanks, Joe. And, John. and uh, you know, it's just stay safe out there, everybody.
2: Safe to you guys. Thanks again. Have a good night, guys. Have a good night. Yeah, have a good night, everybody. All right. <laughs>